Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. On August 4, 1892, Andrew and Abby Borden were viciously murdered in broad daylight in their home in Fall River, Massachusetts. Their daughter, Lizzie, was accused of the murders and brought to trial. It turned out to be the trial of the century. Newspapers across the country ran daily updates, and the courtroom was packed to capacity with eager spectators. After three weeks, the jury deliberated for just two hours before announcing their verdict, not guilty. When she heard the verdict, Lizzie fell back in her chair, then put her head on the rail and wept. The courtroom erupted into cheers, and it was said that the jubilant crowd outside the courthouse could be heard a mile away. Lizzie and her sister Emma inherited $350,000 from their father's estate, the equivalent of $10 million in today's money, and purchased a large house in the wealthiest part of town. This raised more than a few eyebrows. Although the majority of residents of Fall River initially supported Lizzie throughout the trial, after her acquittal, many began to ask the question, if Lizzie didn't kill her parents, then who did? And today, 130 years later, we're still asking the same question. The Lizzie Borden case is one of the most famous unsolved mysteries in American history, and one that my next guest, Joe DeSantis, has done extensive research on. Joe is the author of the fiction novels Blue Dawn Over Gettysburg, Escape from Devil's Den, and The Dartmoor Horror. His newest book, The Maplecroft Message, is a fictional follow-up to the Lizzie Borden murder case that features the one and only Sherlock Holmes. Joe has had a lifelong interest in the Borden murders, and today he'll share his insights on Lizzie Borden. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me on, Barry. Now, your new book, The Maplecroft Message, picks up a few years after Lizzie was acquitted of the axe murders. Why don't we start with a timeline of the murders themselves? What was going on in the Borden household in the days leading up to these vicious killings? She was in her early 30s when the murders took place in August of 1892. Up until that time, she was a model citizen. She taught Sunday school. She was involved in a lot of Fall River's civic organizations. She was in a women's temperance movement. There was nothing up until that day to ever believe that she could even conceive of doing something like this. And that's sort of common with even murders that you hear about today. It's always like, oh, he was such a nice guy. I would never have suspected and then the murders happen, and what is the timeline of that? The day before, her uncle on her mother's side, her birth mother's side, John Morse, comes to visit for a few days. He's in town on business. 
the next morning, he goes out to do whatever he's here to do for the week for that uh, few days. Her father goes out about nine o'clock or so. It's estimated that Abby Borden was killed in an upstairs bedroom somewhere between like 9 a.m. and 10.30. Now that's Lizzie's stepmother, just to the be clear. The stepmother, yes, yes. Okay. And according to her statement, or one of her statements, Lizzie said she was in the barn looking for some sinkers. And then when she came back in around 11-ish, she saw her father hacked up on the parlor couch. And according to testimony, screamed up to the maid, Margaret Sullivan, Margaret, come quick. Someone's come in and killed father. Now, I found that to be a very strange statement because if she came in and saw her father in such a state, how would she assume that person was still not in the house? And wondering if the servant, Maggie, was okay too. So the father is dead on the couch. The stepmother is dead this floor above. The second floor, yes. And above that is where the maid was staying that day. Yes, she and she had an attic room. Okay. She had an attic room there permanently. Okay. And so she was in the house when the mother was killed right underneath her floor. Yes. She had been washing windows, but it was very hot and she didn't feel well. She went upstairs to lie down. Uh, so obviously she didn't hear anything. Do you find that suspicious? <laughs> I kind of do. Well, I know people have pointed a finger at her. But I doubt that she would kill both of her employers and then just go back upstairs and lie down. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But I just wonder about, you know, can you not hear something happen? How would you account for that? Uh, I really can't. There has been a great deal of speculation that Sullivan knew that Lizzie murdered her parents and was just covering for her. Or maybe she even knew ahead of time that she was going to murder her parents yes, and she yeah. hid out in, in her room and waited till it was done. You just have to imagine being in a room right above where somebody's getting murdered with an axe and not hear anything and say, oh, I was sick, I was sleeping. And the day was very hot, wasn't it? Yes, that's why she said she was ill. She was upset that Abby told her to go outside and wash the windows on such a hot day. Now, Abby was... She was hit about 17 or 18 times with the hatchet. It's hard to think that upstairs she would not hear those sounds. So it was a really hot day and the housekeeper is upstairs. The maid is upstairs in her room. Lizzie apparently is out in the barn looking for these sinkers. And again, you have to wonder, wow, this must have been a, a brutally hot time in a barn, in an enclosed barn. Is that another thing that people wondered about? Well, it did seem odd that she was there looking for those particular items. But I believe her testimony was corroborated by a neighbor who mm. saw her coming out of the barn somewhere in the neighborhood of 11 o'clock or shortly thereafter. I don't know if she noticed that she was seen by the person or made sure she was seen right, by the person. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to backtrack big time, <laughs> big time in the timeline. Before the murders, there was a robbery in the house in June of 1891. Do you think that had anything to do with Lizzie sort of starting to set things up? Things were stolen. She was actually accused of being the one who was taking things and stealing things. But do you think she was actually saying, okay, if I make it look like my father's being targeted? I believe that she would steal the items. I mean, there was some jewelry taken. Yeah, and cash. Uh, and cash. 
you need to know that Lizzie and Emma were both upset with their father because he was giving property to Abby's relatives. Okay, and Abby's the stepmother. Yes, the stepmother. And they didn't like the stepmother to begin with. So when they see Andrew giving away property, and they were in a well-to-do neighborhood, but not opulent, which they didn't like. There was no indoor plumbing. So that, especially for a woman, that would tick you off. Yeah. Especially when you could have such a thing. And he was wealthy, apparently. Yes. Yes. He was director of a bank. He was a land speculator. He directed textile mills. He had his hand in everything in Fall River. Not particularly well-liked, I don't believe, but he was certainly very influential. Hmm. This is their future inheritance that is being given away, basically, to strangers. Yes. To their stepmother's family, who they don't even like her. There was some talk about that the two sisters had left after a disagreement right before the murders. Yes. They both left to visit some close relatives nearby. Lizzie came back about a week before the murders. Emma stayed. She didn't come back. And it's been speculated that when you think about Emma being a suspect, it's been said that she came back like during the middle of the night and then hacked them both up and then went back to, <laughs> uh, to the relative's house like 15 miles away. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's really a bit of a stretch. Yeah. But she was not at home no, she was during not. the murder. She was still at these relatives. She had a great alibi. So there was a police investigation, obviously, and I understand that that was really botched. Yes. Well, you have to think back. We're in the 1890s. There's no DNA. Fingerprints, I don't even think were a big deal then. Fingerprints, I don't think were even, a, even thought of back then. And the day of the murders, there was a police picnic and a lot of the police force was at the picnic. Wow. So they were short-staffed. The situation of a double homicide like that is not something a small-town police force, even fully staffed, would have a, a great deal of experience working with. Yeah, and, it's uh, a small town. It's a so small it, town. It probably shocked them as much as anyone else. Yeah, and again, to bring it to the present, we do see cases even now where there are small towns and there are small town police forces that try to do their best, but they're really messing up the crime scene and they're making things worse, which apparently was the case with this as yeah. well. Once it was established that it was a double homicide, the police did mess up by not securing the crime scene. And their initial investigation, or I should say interrogation, of Lizzie was perhaps not quite what it could have been due to Victorian mores of the times. It was uh, a cursory investigation of her. However, over a period of days, her testimony and her demeanor stood out and they began zeroing in on her. That's where we wound up with, you know, her being charged. Yeah. And getting back to the police investigation, I understand that she was actually allowed after they did an initial investigation, and I guess hauled the bodies away, that they actually allowed her to not only go back in the house, but to live in the house. Yes, she lived in the house. Emma came back. Uh, John Morse, their uncle, wound up staying over. So that night. So they're all back in the house. Everybody's back in the house. She had a friend. Uh, I think she had a friend stay over with her too. It was literally like an open house. Yeah. Which brings me to the other bit of this case, which is that she was seen burning a dress. Yes. The woman that I couldn't think of before was Alice Russell. 
a close friend of hers, and she gave testimony that Lizzie was burning a dress. She claimed, Lizzie that is, that she got paint on it and it was no good anymore. So, so I so, guess I'll go burn it, right? Well, yeah, well, I, the, when, I, you know, when I think of that, I think of today and I'm saying, if you've got fabric or anything at all that could be of use, you used it, you cut it up, you got something out of it. You don't rush and burn the material. It is pretty suspicious. Yes. And also suspicious is her friend, Alice Russell, testified during the trial that Lizzie showed up to her house the night before the murders, and she confided that she was depressed and afraid. She said that, I felt as if something was hanging over me that I can't throw off, and it comes over me at times, no matter where I am. And she even went so far as to say that her father had enemies and she was afraid that somebody was going to hurt him. And she also said that one night she saw a man running outside the house. And this is just the day before the murders. So that sounds really suspicious, too. I can't help but think that she's trying to set things up right before the murders. She knew she was going to do this. Maybe she didn't know the time. You know, maybe she didn't know it was going to be the following day. But it sounds like she wanted to put the word out that her father had enemies, that she was afraid that something would happen to him. Uh, So I just think that sounds really suspicious. Uh, Now about the murder weapon. Was it ever found? The axe, I should say the hatchet handle was not found. The hatchet head was found downstairs in the basement with a couple of other hatchets. And it was pretty well decided that that was the murder weapon. Did it have blood on it? I don't recall if there was any blood left on there. But I know a few years ago there was a uh, show and there was a detective that went into the basement with a black light, which can show blood. And he shone it all around the basement slop sink area. And he looked up on the ceiling and he put the black light on the ceiling and there were traces of blood. So there was blood there in that basement, yeah. whether from the ceiling or wiping off that axe head. Yeah. And I guess if, it, if this was part of a trial, somebody would say, well, they used to slaughter a chicken and clean it downstairs. So, so then there goes anybody's theory. But it right. is suspicious. And the fact that she had burned the dress, that we've got this murder weapon in the house and the axe handle is missing. Even that, like, why would a handle be missing? Wasn't it clearly broken off too? Wasn't yes. It? So it wasn't like this had happened a long time ago. Right. Yes, it, was, uh, it looked like a recent break. Now, I think Abby got about 18 shots to the head. Andrew got just under a dozen. So if you're hitting something with a lot of pent-up fury or energy, it's quite reasonable to believe that you could break the handle. Yeah. And getting back to the bodies, there was something about his body that looked suspicious to you. Yes. Both Sullivan and Lizzie both claimed that they took Andrew's boots off so he could rest. The photo, you know, the famous photo of him lying all smashed up on the couch shows his boots were still on, which was very odd. The thing that I noticed, forgetting the boots, was that his feet were off the uh, couch and almost lying on the floor. Now, if you're going to be hacked in the head, let's say, if you're lucky, the first two or three kill you. But it would be just part of a body function to be hit like that, that your arms and legs would spasm and jump out. And he looked like he was just still taking his nap. 
So both Lizzie and the maid both said that they had taken the shoes off of Mr. Borden. Correct. So that's another thing that you have to wonder, was the maid in on this? The Bordens were not particularly charming people. They didn't treat Sullivan, the maid, very nicely. They treated her rather poorly. So there certainly was no love lost between the three. I wouldn't be surprised if she was not at all upset when she learned that they were dead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that doesn't mean she was in on it. Correct. But but at the same time, you know, I can't help but say, wow, there's a lot of things pointing to her at least having some knowledge. prior knowledge. Prior knowledge. Yes. Keeping quiet while the murders were being done. Changing a story about the boots. Those are all really interesting. So the murders take place. The police come. They conduct this really shoddy investigation. When did Lizzie finally get accused? It was several days later. And I think it was August 8th that they had the uh, pretrial. You know, when they did all the different testimonies, it was decided to go forward with a trial and charging her with the actual murders. Yeah. Well, so much pointed to her. Who else did they suspect? Was there any other suspects? I know we have theories now, but back then... Well, there was the theory that was thrown out was that a random stranger came into the house and killed them both and ran out. But there was nothing to even hint that. that, that could yeah, it didn't place. really make sense. That wouldn't really make sense. Also, I, I understand that the timeline would mean that this person would have killed the mother, the stepmother, waited in the house, hid somewhere, killed the father, hid somewhere, and then somehow got out. And miraculously did not know Sullivan was upstairs or didn't look. Right, yeah. What was the public's view during the trial? This was probably a big newspaper It was. This was, this was the OJ trial of the 19th century. Yeah, really, century. yeah. And there were a lot of people for her, a lot of people against her. I think more were against her that were out of the Fall River vicinity. She was an attractive young woman, a spinster, a spinster by Victorian standards. She was... In her early 30s. Yeah. And her sister, I believe, was 41. Sister was also unmarried. It was such a strange situation that the court was packed every day. She had her detractors. She had those who were propping her up. But the jury, of course, back then, you got its 12 men from the area. They just saw her sitting there and couldn't believe that someone like her could do such a thing. Even with all the evidence pointing in their direction. Even with no direct evidence. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence. When you put A, B, C, D, E together, you look and you say, well, it's got to be her. But they just couldn't bring themselves to do that. Were there ever interviews with those jurors afterward? That would be interesting to hear what they were actually thinking. Like, well, we didn't find her guilty because we couldn't find enough to say she was guilty, but we didn't think she was not guilty. I have not, I haven't read any follow-ups. Yeah, I don't know that they did very much of that. Even now, it's hard to find a juror who will talk after a trial. Unless they want to make money. Unless they want to make money, (laughs) which they weren't doing back then with trials. Right. Yeah. So she goes through the trial and eventually found not guilty. What was the reaction in the public's eye? Again, it was mixed. In Fall River, it was mostly guilty. And some who said she's innocent. She moved to that nicer section that she and her sister wanted to go. It was a neighborhood known as The Hill. 
So they did move to a very nice home uh, she named Maplecroft, which has been for sale. I've seen interior pictures of the home. It's like a Victorian Christmas card. Wow. Just beautiful. I've also been to the murder house, and it is very middle of the road, a nice setting, but again, not opulent by any stretch. Yes, and if you had the money, why wouldn't you get a nicer house? Which with is, a bathroom. With a bathroom. <laughs> even just not even a nicer house with a bathroom, just a house with a bathroom would be nice. She and her sister actually benefited financially from these murders, so there was a motive there. They inherited quite a bit of money. In today's money, it was in the low millions, but certainly quite enough to handle their needs. Yeah. For 30 years, uh, Lizzie, uh, she, changed, she wanted to be known as Lizbeth after the murders. Mm-hmm. She lived very quietly in Fall River. She was pretty much shunned by uh, everyone, but didn't seem to bother her. She and her uh, sister lived together at least for a while, and then they had a falling out. Uh, Lizzie Lisbeth now had a party for a a friend of hers. The last name was O'Neill. And after that party, they had a big fight and she moved out. Now that's a lot of speculation too. Supposedly there was a sexual relationship between Lizzie and Ms. O'Neill. Was she an actress? Yes. She was uh, fairly famous at the time. Yes. Very well known. She tried to keep up appearances and move on with her life. Yeah. I guess you stay in the town where you're accused of being a vicious murderer is pretty ballsy. At the same time, if you leave, are you showing that you're guilty? And does she stay just because it's like, you know, if I leave, it's going to look like I'm guilty. It was a no-win situation for her after the trial. So she decided to stay. Yeah. She died about 30 years later. She was 66. She had been ill for a short while, died of pneumonia, and then like 10 days later, her sister died of kidney failure. And they were not, again, they were not living together. That no, point. she moved out and didn't come back. Did they ever speak to one another again? Or? That, I, that I don't know. I know they're all buried together. Wow, yeah. <laughs> the fact that they exhumed Abby and Andrew's skulls. Yes, I to, heard about that, yeah. To, to show at the trial, that was like insult to injury to those poor people. So Lizzie's there on the stand and they bring in her parents' skulls that are nice and cleaned, but they've got yes. bash marks. Well, the, 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 the and hat, you know, there's, there's the hatchet uh, marks are in them, yeah. Hatchet marks is empty spots in the skull. Wow. Uh, suppose it, well, not supposedly. She saw that and fainted. She didn't know that was going to be presented. She fainted, which probably helped her. Probably helped her with the jury. I don't know if that was a smart move on the part of the prosecution. But, you know, they were just trying to find some hookup with Lizzie. Well, I think they just want to show how vicious the murders were to sway the jury to say, look at how bad this was and look what she did. Are there any other theories besides the stranger? John Morse, who was the uncle that came the day before the murders, he was questioned briefly, but it really wouldn't make sense for him to show up at a house, kill the two inhabitants, (laughs) and then... then, uh, you know, oh, I'm, oh, hi. I just, I'm, I'm, I just, I'm here to kill both of you. Yeah, but it is kind of suspicious. I mean, just to play devil's advocate, he hadn't been in the picture for years, had he? No. He just sort of showed up one day and... He was supposedly perhaps going to do business with Andrew Borden. That never came to fruition, obviously, because Andrew was killed uh, yeah, yeah. that morning. So here we have Lizzie Borden, and she's known by that famous, terrible rhyme. 
pegged as a murderer, which she probably was, but that's what she was known for in her lifetime. Now, all these years later, what do you think of Lizzie's reputation, how she's remembered today? I am not a Lizzie apologist, but I believe she shouldn't be judged solely on what happened in maybe under an hour's time. She lived 66 years, and except for that one hour, she was a model citizen. Not to take away from the horror of her action, but it just seems that she somehow lost control of her senses and went into a rage. Perhaps today she would be declared innocent by reason of temporary insanity. But I am not one to uh, believe that she should have been seriously punished for the crime. Even if she did it. Even if she did it, mm, yes. Interesting. So Lizzie goes on, lives her life, her sister lives her life, and here we are all these years later, and we're still fascinated by this case, which brings me to your book, which is really an incredible book. I would imagine that you've had a lifelong interest in the Lizzie Borden case, because you know so much about it. Is that right? I became interested in it from the infamous nursery rhyme, and I slowly built up gathering information and came to the point where I wondered how interesting it would be if Sherlock Holmes ever interacted with her. In my book, Holmes and Watson are on a vacation in Massachusetts, and they receive a letter from Lizzie Borden saying, I heard you uh, in the area vacationing. I've been accused of another murder. Can you please come and help me? So Watson really doesn't want any part of it. But Holmes, of course, can't resist. They go to Fall River and interview Lizzie. I go to the police, get information from them. And as the story goes on, both Holmes and Watson find themselves investigating not Lizzie's uh, innocence, but they're trying to find out if she was guilty. Other murders take place as they're there. Some of those murders were people who helped Lizzie during her, her bad time. And some of the murders were people who could have been a great detriment to her. So that is the stickling point that Holmes can't figure out. And that's what I couldn't figure out as I was reading the book. And you did a, such a great job of coming up with these murder victims that, oh, this one was really on Lizzie's side through the trial and she really helped or he really helped. And they're the ones that get killed. And then the next person that gets killed is somebody who really was not for her and was really a problem for her during the trial. All of the people that were murdered were, in fact, historical figures involved in the trial. I didn't make the murder victims up. I did fit them into the story, however. Right, yeah. Which is why I really appreciate all the work that you did in researching this, because you did a great job at making it feel like you're really part of the whole Lizzie Borden atmosphere of the time. Because you're using real people's names, you're using real locations, the names of real streets and houses. It feels very authentic. So you're really pulled right into that book. It's really an excellent book. I tried to make it seem like a movie, and I was the director. I love the old universal black and white Holmes and Watson movies. And I patterned this story and the Dartmoor Horror, the other book, as though they were a movie. And I put in my dialogue as though they were, you know, reciting lines yeah. and uh, tried my best to keep up with the universal movie yeah. tradition. It reads that way. And I was picturing Basil Rathbone as oh. your Holmes as I was reading it. And, and Nigel Bruce. Yes, and, yeah. Yes. And it was easy to do because you did such a great job again with the dialogue and the location. 
you know, as you're saying that you wrote it as if you were a director, I'm reading it as if I'm watching a movie because it was that well done. And you have another one in the works. It's called The Glom's Castle Murders. It takes place in Scotland at a purportedly haunted castle. And I believe it's going to be out next summer or next fall. And I'm sure you did a lot of research for that new book as well, just as you did with the Lizzie Borden book. Reading that one, I really felt like I was in the house as I was reading it. Well, being actually being in the house itself, going to visit, it was about a four-hour drive, but <laughs> it was worth it. It was uh, interesting to eyeball the actual locations. It's a small house. You know, when you go in there, people can't wait to say, oh, I felt this, I felt that. You can make yourself feel yeah. certain things. I went there with an open mind. The feeling that I got going through the first and second floors and then back down to the murder room of Andrew was that we were being watched very impassively. Just like, oh, who's here now? Because it's tons of people walking in and out of there. Exactly, yeah. Uh, it was interesting. So tell us, where can we find your books? It's available on Amazon, but if people are interested in Sherlock Holmes, this publishing outfit that has taken on my books is called Bellinger Books, B-E-L-A-N-G-E-R-B-O-O-K-S.com. Okay, and I'll have that in the program notes. I'll okay. have links to your yes. books. All right, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And can't wait to read your next book. Thank you. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings.